Well, good morning. <laughs> so uh, I was I was hoping that February would, you know, maybe like I I like February and all, but I was hoping that maybe February would stay in February and it wouldn't make it into March. But then the I mean I do kind of like the snow, and I was pretty excited to see it this morning as uh, the class this morning actually saw me. I burst out and was like, snow. Which is exciting. Uh, but I like February for another reason. It's actually my wife's birthday month. So in our household, my, my wife gets a birthday month. And we've decided on this. And, and we, both, we both love it, actually. Uh, there's good restaurants. Uh, there's some freebie restaurants out there. Latitude 43, although they're, they're now... Uh, under construction, but uh, any of the Serenity restaurants, if you know what I'm talking about, get a free entree, get a free dessert on your birthday, all of you should go out and sign up for that card, I'm just saying. But uh, this year we actually got a good group of our friends together, uh, actually several from the church, to go to an escape room. How many of you have been to an escape room before? Okay, how many of you have heard that this is like a thing that's happening now? There's, there's kind of this fad of phenomenon. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's a thing that people are doing now called escape rooms. And it's kind of a strange thing. You're like, you get together as a team. And I guess it's a, it's a team building exercise. You get thrown into a room. You get locked in. You're not really locked in if you need to go. I mean, like there's kind of laws preventing that actually. Uh, but you're given 60 minutes, you know, so it, it, it could be anything. You, you, uh, I want you to kind of imagine you, you arrive with your team at an escape room. You receive maybe this theme that uh, has instructions to it. Perhaps an experiment has gone horribly wrong and your, your team needs to shut down the zombie monster and escape the lab within 60 minutes. So you and your team, you you rush into the room and you quickly disperse and you scour the room for any potential clues. And not before long, you and your team members are shouting out, 7291, 7291, we have to remember 7291. Uh, blue, yellow, green, and, and white. Blue, yellow, green, white. But does anyone else see like a color-coded lock anywhere? But then... Imagine 40 minutes have gone by and you have 20 minutes left and you haven't figured anything out. And you just keep encountering the same clues over and over again and you're, and you're like racking your brain trying to figure out what the heck is this number for in these colors and I'm trying to, you know, I, I don't even really, this, this lock only has three numbers but I have four numbers. And you, you just keep going around and, and people are shouting out, have we tried this? Have we tried that? I mean, you've tried every sequence imaginable, but nothing works. Amidst all the shouting from your team, you unthinkingly exclaim, is there no other option? And then, as if from out of the sky, someone shouts, wait a minute, what, what's this? Only to have discovered a new possibility. It's a loose floorboard. Once the panel is lifted up, what should be found? But four color-coded buttons. Blue, 
yellow, green, white. And you press them in sequence only for the door at the end of the room to suddenly swing open, revealing a whole new set of possibilities for the other numbers, letters, and patterns you had already found. When new possibilities open up that were not previously available to us, it is a game changer. Whatever had left us despairing or or frustratingly exclaiming, is there no other option? These, These things are suddenly no longer as limiting as they had seemed. Suddenly there's there's new possibilities opened up to us to explore and discover. See, our church has been going through a preaching series, as uh, you should know, journeying through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. In this letter, Paul centers in on our hope in Jesus. And this is a hope that has burst into our lives and swung open a new door where there are new possibilities open to his people. Today marks a clear shift in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, it can be found on page number 957 in the Black Pew Bible. We'll find that Paul turns now to address other matters. Coming out from three chapters of excitement, joy, and celebration for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Thessalonian church and its individual members. Paul now turns to encourage them to continue more and more because by God's Spirit, new possibilities have opened up for them. So, I should open it myself. Reading from just the first two verses of chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Before we move any further in the passage, I think it's actually really important that we stop here and and focus in on these two verses because these two verses actually, in in a lot of ways, function as a distinct entity for the next three passages um, that that we'll be exploring over the next three Sundays. But we have to stop here and we have to appreciate the tone that Paul is setting up. You see, when we take a look at this, notice... Notice the tone that's here. We have, he refers to them as brothers and sisters. He, he doesn't just give them instruction, but he says, actually, you're already doing this. And now he's saying uh, that he wants to ask and urge them. And this actually, this, this should not be glanced over. These verbs, to ask and to urge, he, he could have said to command, 
Uh, It's not out of Paul's vocabulary to say, this is from the Lord, this is a command. But, But he's also not shying away and saying, this is just a suggestion. But there's a tone here where he's saying, there's something that we must do but I'm, I'm asking and I'm urging you to, to move forward and to do this more and more. And so then, with the tone in place, now we take a look, well, what's the plea? So we're seeing that there's this uh, very loving and tender and, and gentle and yet urgent tone that he has, but the plea is to live in order to please God. But this can really all be summarized with the statement, more and more. More and more. It's something that they're already doing, but he wants more and more of it. It's not, it's actually, uh, there are theories that this letter was written not too far from the time that he also wrote the letter to the Galatians. Which, if you know anything about the letter to the Galatians, he's pretty ticked. He's pretty mad. And it comes out in that letter. He, he says, who has bewitched you? What's the tone there? This is a very different letter. This is a very different situation that he's addressing. He sees good things and he wants to foster more and more in the church. So really what this is, is this is discipleship. This is discipleship language. He's encouraging them more and more. And so what I want us to notice is he's really saying, by the Holy Spirit, new possibilities have opened up for them. Because of what God has done in Jesus, new possibilities are available to them, and they've already started to experience this. We we saw all the way back in chapter 1, in the very first few verses, he says, for we we know brothers and sisters loved by God, again, notice that tone, loved by God, that's who you are, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. He's saying something that we all know he, he, for the Thessalonian church, that you guys know that when the gospel came to you, the Holy Spirit just went to work. And you guys already know that. I'm not telling it to you. I'm sharing in that knowledge with you. He moves on a few verses later in verse 8 and 9 to say, Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For for they themselves, the, the surrounding world, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is what the world is saying. It's not something that Paul himself has to proclaim. Even the entire world is recognizing Something is happening in this community. It's the Holy Spirit at work opening up new possibilities for them. In chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, since you are standing firm in the Lord. He's just gone through this large section talking about how he was so worried about whether or not they were going to withstand the persecution against him because the persecution had driven him out of town. And this is only a few months after he was just with them in Thessalonica and he sent back Timothy to hear how they're doing and Timothy had a good report. They're standing firm in the Lord even in the face of oppression. And he's saying, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy 
we have in the presence of our God because of you. God is at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. New possibilities have opened up. And and, and I want you to imagine what it would be like to be one of these Thessalonians. You're living a very normal life. You were a pagan. It says you, you turned to God from idols. So they were once idol worshipers. They were pagans. And all of a sudden, this man and his partners come around, talk about the Lord Jesus, and like, wow, I think that's true. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit goes to work in your life, and you find that you're doing things that you wouldn't have thought you'd be doing even just a week ago. You're, you're taking on persecution. You're, you're ta- people are making fun of you. People are ridiculing you. They're, they're dragging you around. Maybe they're even hurting you. And yet you're, you're withstanding. And could, could you have even dreamed of doing that prior? And all of a sudden, there's a new door has swung open. And new possibilities are available because the Holy Spirit is at work. And so, Paul is saying, this is great. This is wonderful. But I've got good news. You've only scratched the surface. I'm telling you that you can go even further and deeper still. More and more. It's discipleship. So now, having set the tone for his plea, Paul now, and only now, turns to unpack three important areas of life where God's Spirit has now, been, has now opened up new possibilities. And in order of this text, and for this church, it's the topic of sex, which we'll talk about today. Next, it's the topic of money and brotherhood. And then it's the topic of death. And so we will go through those topics over the next three weeks. But as we approach each of these topics over the next three weeks, it is vital that we recognize that Paul is specifically discipling the Thessalonian church through specific issues that are most relevant to them. That being said, it is important that we listen in in order to hear how God's Spirit might be opening up new possibilities for us. So I want us to turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. And as I read through this, I, I want you to consider how is Paul taking that tone of love, tenderness, and discipleship into such a sensitive topic as human sexuality. Reading from verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will Punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. I want us to focus in on this sentence, verse 7. I think this 
is you know, whenever we see the, a word like for or therefore, you know, you ask what it's there for, and uh, and 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 you and you see that this is the reason, this is the grounds given for his instructions on human sexuality. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Impure and holy. Impure and holy. So he sets up this juxtaposition between these two ideas throughout the passage. Uh, Impure and holy. And perhaps this is what we think it means. Impure means sex. Holy means no sex. Dead wrong. Absolutely dead wrong. Don't believe it for a moment. Don't believe it for a moment. Even if you... in. Up here, you know this is not true. In here, we, it's, it can be very easy to live as if this is true. To, to just so shame yourself or to be ashamed of actually the good and holy desires that God has put in us. And so what is impure versus holy? I would actually say we need to nuance it. It's Impure is, is, is this idea of corruption or a pollution or imagine a, a drink and, uh, that you purified water, but then if I put a little bit of salt in it or soil, it, it becomes impure, it becomes uh, corrupted. It, or, or maybe a diamond, you can have a pure diamond, but it, if it has corruptions, it's not pure. There's something in it that's not the way it ought to be. And I want to juxtapose that to holy and holistic sexuality. And even notice this word holistic and how it is derived from the word holy. Something that is holistic is it's, it's whole, it's complete. It's the way it ought to be. It was the way it was designed. And so I, I think what Paul is setting up here is not a juxtaposition between sexual desire and denying your body, denying the desires they have, but he's actually he's, he's looking to teach us to deny a corrupted human sexuality that the world, that the culture has just, we're saturated with it. And he's trying to reframe our mind, open up the new possibilities and show us that sex by God's design is far more holistic. So I want to take a look through the passage, and notice how he talks about impure sex. What is impure sex? One, impure sex is an all-powerful God. In verse 5, he, talks, he, he juxtaposes pure sexuality with the pagans who do not know God. It's very important that he mention the pagans. Because that's what they once were. That's what the Thessalonian church once was. They were once pagans who did not know God. And in pagan worship and in pagan idolatry, sex was part of the idolatry cults. You go to the temple and you sleep with prostitutes in order to make sure that your family is fertile, in order to make sure that your crops get rained on uh, because you have a mother earth and a... Uh, Father God that puts his seed into the earth and fertilizes it. And so you try to manipulate the deities to do what 
needs to be done in your life. And so you use sex for manipulative purposes. You, and you worship it. There is more, a, a number of sex gods in the ancient world. And so in this, in this way, they kind of treat humans as if they're sex machines to an all-powerful uh, sex deity that they just have to give allegiance to. It's just part of what's swirling in the culture. The second thing is he paints impure sex as an uncontrollable desire. He talks about passionate lust, that that's what the pagans have. They have a passionate lust. And this is this idea of this burning flame, this, this uncontrollable, it's untamable. I, I, I see it and I, I just go for it. And I, I, you know, I, I can't deny what, what's happening in me and I, I, can't, I, I can't help myself. And so he paints impure sex as it, it, just, it just gives in. It, it, it has no sense of control. And it's also for the taking. Uh, he says, uh, he talks about people who wrong or take advantage of each other. Uh, I think sadly we, uh, our culture is bringing a lot of this to light now, um, which, which is actually a really good thing. But this has been going on for a long time. And I, I think it's this idea of it's seizing an opportunity. It's a first century woman in a toga bending down and, the, and a man <laughs> seizes an opportunity to lust after her and, and take, take what he can from her, to objectify her. Or it's an idea of... Uh, a woman putting herself on the street and prostituting herself out in order that as merchants and men come along the streets, they would seize an opportunity. They can take advantage of the moment. And this was just common practice in the ancient world. It wasn't even really looked down upon. So, what about our culture? I, I, I don't think it really is too hard to say. Actually, our culture may be different today, but it's really not so different. We glorify sex, and not in a good way. We, we turn it into a God of its own. We, it's in the music, it's in our media, it's all around us, it's saturated in propaganda. They say sex sells, and it does. So it's manipulated. Um, it's an uncontrollable desire. In uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, he says that at base, humans are biological machines and it, our purpose is to propagate DNA. How can you deny what's biology? It's just how we were made. Uh, and so it's uncontrollable. It's, it's how we're wired. And sex is for the taking in our culture. It's something that we need to be satisfied, that we need to be fulfilled. And if you can't get it uh, in the intimacy of another, you can get it right here. You can get it right from the internet. It, it makes more money, the pornography industry, than the NFL, MLB, and NBA combined is a statistic that has been thrown around for a few decades now. This is a powerful industry in the world, and it 
feeds on this idea of take what you can. No one's looking, it's hidden. Now, what about holy sex? What is holy sex? Paul doesn't exactly detail out, and I just want you to know, this is what holy sex is. But rather, he kind of assumes it. It's, it's not uh, detailed out in this passage, but he's assuming the whole Old Testament, and he's assuming Jesus' teaching. And through, uh, uh, through the grand witness of God, we learn that sex is a sacred gift from God. It goes all the way back to Genesis 2 in the garden where Adam and Eve were made for each other. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and uh, the two become one flesh. That's a pre-fall thing. This is a sacred gift from God, but yet it's not like a pagan thing where it's all-powerful, it's all-consuming. We actually have an option. It's not something we need, rather it's something given as a gift. And I, I think that's really important for us to grasp, especially when we think of this next idea that it, it's a controllable desire. It's a controllable desire. Because we have, as I said earlier in my announcement, we have marrieds in this room, we have uh, single people in this room, we have divorced people in this room, we have uh, widows in this room, we have people who have remarried in this room. And I think there can be a huge question here about, but are you saying that if sex is holy, then it's something I need in my life? And I actually, I think it's important to recognize that sex is an expression of something that is deep, more deeply needed in the human life. Even think about it. Think about all the people that have lived a single life. Our Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, vast numbers of priests and uh, monks and monastics and nuns. and pe- it, like, People have given up their entire lives uh, to remain celibate and single in recognition that there's deeper needs of intimacy, partnership, of community, of knowledge. The, the Hebrew word uh, that is used often for to have sex is to know. And Adam knew his wife. This, there's this idea of to know one another, which really then means that Sex is a mirror of just a, a relationship that is so knowledgeable of one another, so intimate that things can just be laid bare. Those are the real genuine needs. And sex is just an expression, a good expression, but it's not the be-all, end-all. That's God. And sex is then for the giving. It's not for the taking, it's for the giving. But I think this perhaps is what we wonder. Is this even possible? Okay, that's what sex is, that's how the Bible paints it, and that's great, but I don't even know if this is possible. And is, is this really our only option? I've got two stories to unpack this. One, 
I just gotten engaged, uh, and my wife or my fiance uh, at the time and I went up to Newburyport to celebrate. And uh, while my fiance was in the bathroom, um, this waitress started talking to me. She's like, "Oh, are you guys celebrating your engagement?" I was like, "Yeah." And she she asked, uh, "Where do you guys live?" And I said, "Well, my fiance lives in Beverly, and I live in Hamilton." And she kind of went like this. You get you guys don't live together, and I could just see the question swirling in her head of like, "Wow, is this even going to work? Like, you guys didn't even live together. Like, I mean, how do you guys even know if you're compatible?" And I so I I had to think through my words very well. But after uh, my fiance had come back and we kind of both talked to her about this, how like actually we've like really been spending time talking. We've been reading through this book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller and we're, we're realizing that if, if sex is full knowledge of someone else, full intimacy with someone else, how could it not then be full commitment to that person? It, I, we, we'd have to make a vow to be with each other forever, which that sounds like marriage. <laughs> before we could really take that step. And she was, she was like, wow, that is so beautiful. I wish. I wish. And I think bound up in that statement, I wish. She went on to tell us that she uh, is living with her boyfriend, which we didn't like try to guilt her into like telling us that. But, but I think it showed this sense of like, that's amazing for you guys, but that's not even an option for me. I don't even know how I could do that. A culture is not built that way. It's just, it's an expectation. And I think it's in the church too. I think it's hidden, but I think it's swirling around in the back of our minds. I was once an employee at Air Pastel and I had a manager that really liked to uh, close with me. And he, um, he was a Christian. I really do believe he was a Christian. He loved asking me questions. I was 16 at the time. And he once just like flat out asked me, he was like, hey, bro, you, like, you really think that God like still wants us to wait to have sex in marriage? And I'm like, I'm 16. I live with my parents. Like, I <laughs> but I, I said to him, actually, I don't really remember what I said to him. I know I, I gave an ortho, a biblically orthodox answer. I said yes. But I, I think his question there still... It showed even in Christian circles, even though this might be believed like this is the biblical way, but we just have to admit we're going to sin in this area. We just have to admit that there's no option for us. And, and we just have to lean on the grace of Christ in this area. But I don't think that's the news here. This is news. Holy sex is possible. This is possible. Paul wouldn't be writing this if he was telling us this was impossible. The very fact that he's writing something like this to the Thessalonian church, he's telling them it's possible. And so I want us to hear how it's possible, to hear it has, as that tone of discipleship, and this is how it's possible. It's that last part. Verse 8, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And remember, we need to keep the first three chapters of this letter when we hear that phrase. That's not just an empty like, hey, you got the Holy Spirit, so you know, good luck, you're fine. This is saying, we've seen the Holy Spirit at work in your lives. He's opened up new possibilities for you. New possibilities have opened up to enable us 
for holiness. More and more. And I think that's the importance of this phrase, more and more. It's not going to happen in an instant. Isn't it even amazing that Paul doesn't like the, the fact that he's writing this in a letter? He, he spent months with this church. And it's possible that he talked about it with the church already, but he's, he's assuming that actually there's things in their lives or there's something going on in the church where they can grow in this area. They can learn to be more sexually pure, sexually holy. Which, isn't that amazing that he's not treating this as if it's the letter to the Galatians saying, who has bewitched you? But he's saying, you're already doing the godly life. I want you to do it more and more. And so what does it look like? It looks like avoiding sexual immorality. That's possible. It's possible to avoid sexual immorality. It looks like learning self-control, that each of you should learn to control your own body. It looks like not wronging or taking advantage of a brother or a sister. And notice again the brother and sister language. And I, wanna, I want us to think through what this... I, I, I want us to think of really practical applications for this. So, he says on the one hand, you have the Holy Spirit, and yet he also gives practical instruction. Do these things. And so notice the application isn't, you have the Holy Spirit, lock yourself in a closet, pray fervently, and all of a sudden, a wind will come into the room, and the Holy Spirit will take over your body, and all of a sudden, you're just going to be different. But he's at, he actually says, he gives them instructions. I want you to Avoid sexual immorality. Which I think, that this is what it looks like for us. And this is how the Holy Spirit is active in that. It looks like us not putting ourselves in vulnerable situations. I'm not going to turn here, but there's a passage in the book of Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 7. I recommend that you jot it down. Take a read over it. It's extremely convicting. But it paints an old wise man in his house at night, but he looks out his window and he sees a young man foolishly walking the street where an adulterous woman lives. Sure enough, she comes out and she seduces him. And it's a fascinating image like the writer of Proverbs could have just put, it could have just been a story about a young man walking the streets. But there's a, it's told through the image of an older man, a wiser man, safely in his house because he knows I shouldn't be walking the streets this time of night. I shouldn't be putting myself in a vulnerable situation. Here's where I think we're vulnerable today. It's the internet. It's very easy to hide on the internet. Don't raise your hand. Rhetorical question. How many of you go into the bathroom and take out your phone and waste time on your phone? Vulnerable situation. And you might say, oh, well, I'm not looking up inappropriate. But what, what is this desire that you have to be hidden with your phone? To be, to be in a digital world where there's no accountability, where you are in a private space. Incognito mode on Chrome or any of the web browsers. What is this desire to be hidden? There is software that I highly recommend whether or not this is a specific area of, um, 
struggle for you. One, one example is Covenant Eyes. Both of these are paid subscription. The other is called Accountable to You. Uh, and basically, they monitor your web usage. You can get filtering. You don't need to do filtering. Um, and what it does is, at the end of the week, it sends out an email to a friend or your spouse, who, someone who you trust. And it will let them know if there was any suggestive material. This is also really good for your kids. And kids in the room, this isn't about... Uh, your parents putting the law on you or getting into your business. But my, my, my wife and I decided that we are going, we have accountable to you. And we decided to get this software before having kids because mommy's not on the internet alone. Daddy's not on the internet alone. The internet is just not a place that you should be on alone. It's not a place to hide. It's not a place of privacy. It's literally the most public domain in the history of the world. We have to protect ourselves. We have to protect our families. This is a good thing for open and honest conversations. That's the next thing. Learning self-control. And notice how in the passage, Paul says, I want you to learn to control your own bodies. Which means it's not going to happen in an instant. I recommend find some people that you trust, especially of the same gender. If, if you're a guy, find another guy that you can really be open and vulnerable and, and intimate with and really lay yourself bare because you know that he is a human too. Same thing for women. And this is important to say. This is not a male-only struggle. More and more, the statistics are rising that women are struggling with lust, pornography, masturbation. Is this a new struggle for women? Or are they finally feeling that they have a place to admit that they like sex too and it entices them? I think it's the latter. And so it's important for both men and women to find structures of accountability, people to have full trust, full vulnerability with. And I, I, just, I challenge you and I encourage you, recognize that the person you're talking to is a human too. Their flesh. They know struggle. They can understand. And of course, do not wrong or take advantage of someone. Recognize that people are made in the image of God. People used to say, um, and I think some people still say, that's someone's daughter. Why are you defining her by her relationship to a man? That's someone's sister still defining that person in relationship to a man. That person is a human being. That person is made in the image of God. Don't take advantage or wrong that person. I just want to close by restating that this is the big idea. By the Holy Spirit, new possibilities have opened to enable us for holiness. We can do this more and more because we have the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for meeting with us in this place and, uh, and for opening up new possibilities for us by the work of Your Spirit in our lives. Many of us, and I hope all of us, 
have seen your work in our lives and, and should know that when you go to work, there are new things that happen that we could not have even imagined before. And we pray that you would grow us more and more into your likeness in the area of human sexuality. We thank you for your patience for us. And that you recognize that we are dust. That we are flesh. And so you have compassion, and yet you still urge us to come more and more in line with your design for human sexuality. May we come around each other as a church in recognition that we need a partnership in this area to aspire to the good things, the intimacy, the partnership, the community, the relationships that we all need. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.